I'm delighted to be joined on the third episode of a life curated by mega dealer and collector Ivor Bracker. Having studied at Oxford and at Sotheby's, at age 24, Ivor got his first taste of the art world when he worked for Andres Kalman at Crane Kalman Gallery in Knightsbridge. With funding from his father and installed in a flat in Pond Street, he then plunged into Wyndham Lewis drawings, Rossetti, J.W. Waterhouse, Mondrian and Ben Nicholson. Having got into Lucien Freud, Francis Bacon and Frank Auerbach way before others did, it was in 1989 when he was introduced to a Swedish collector, Bo Alvred, that Ivor's big break came. A Francis Bacon self-portrait he had bought for $2 million was subsequently sold for $4.2 million. Ivor was set. Dealing also in Paolo Rego, Pablo Picasso and Damien Hirst, by 2001, when Francis Bacon prices began their mountainous climb from $5 million to $86 million, Ivor had been in the Bacon market for decades. Often called a visionary, Ivor attributes some of his success to going against convention, not necessarily following the market, discovering great pictures, and subsequently he has paid and achieved record prices along the way. Splitting his time between London and Norfolk, Ivor operates independently without an army of directors, assistants and white walls, offering a highly private dealership serving the world's biggest collectors. Recorded from Ivor's home in Chelsea, my name is Nolan Brown. I'm an art advisor of the podcast. This is A Life Curated. Ivor, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down for this episode. I'm thrilled to have you on board. Well, first of all, I'd like to take issue with uh, a life curated because curated implies that I have carefully chosen and thoughtfully organised my life, which is anything but. Uh, I believe in chance and luck and good fortune or bad fortune. So a life curated, maybe I'm the wrong person to be in this because uh, my life's been random. A random life curated. A random life that's, um, you know, tried to take opportunities as and when they come up, but those opportunities have not been directed by me. It's been who I've met, and a lot of those meetings have been completely by chance rather than me seeking them out. I obviously had to have the nous to pick up on opportunities. When they when opportunity knocked, I opened the box, but... Um, you know, those opportunities were random opportunities. The fact that my ex-girlfriend was sitting next to Peter Simon at a dinner party and the fact that I did that, the fact that I met Patrick McCackie in Australia, which is one of my biggest breaks of all, actually. I met Patrick McCackie because I had bought a Mondrian for my father and I showed the chief curator at the Art Gallery of Victoria some transparencies, as we then had, and I was all dressed up in my huntsman suit because I thought you had to look smart for a museum, you know. And um, she said, oh, you'd better come and meet the director. And the director was this Professor Patrick McCackie. And it was 10.30 in the morning. And Patrick said, I'm Professor McCackie. And I said, well, I'm Ivor. Um, he said, I think it's time for a gin and tonic, don't you? And he opened the corner cupboard in his, uh, in his office and... Uh, poured me a giant slug of gin and trace of tonic and we we bonded over gin and tonics and um, later he gave me my biggest break when he was director of the Wadsworth Athenaeum and having bought a Bridget Riley through me which I advised him helped buy from auction he said are you free next week for dinner I said yes but it's I'm in London it's a Thursday he said look I'm giving a dinner on Tuesday you've got to come so I got the plane, I flew out and got to Hartford, West Hartford. And 
at the dinner was a man who knew nothing about art but wanted to collect. And Patrick said, this man, I've told him that you will make him a world-class collection in a way that a gallery wouldn't be able to do because they would be pushing their own artists. You will have a completely independent view. And if you want to buy, and we ended up buying Kandinsky, Monet, um, Javlensky, figurative art, because that was his taste, but great Monet water lilies, Charing Cross Bridge, haystacks, grain stacks, I should say, uh, some bacons, hotneys, world-class art, and a collection worth probably, I don't know, a billion dollars probably. So that was my biggest break, was Patrick introducing me to this man. And it all came out of, uh, probably wouldn't have happened if I said no to the gin and tonic. So just to illustrate that chance has been the leading thing in my life, not design. The early years. What was your first art memory? My first art memory was at home in um, Cheshire, in, well, near Manchester, South Manchester, and um, seeing my father's own pictures, because he was a passionate painter himself. Um, I have to say, in my opinion, sadly, not a very good one, but um, a very enthusiastic painter. He painted hundreds of canvases. And also, I was surrounded by art which he had got in lieu of a debt from Andre Kalman, who was a fabulous dealer, dealing in um, from Knightsbridge in London in later years. But my father financed him in Manchester when he was a, first over here as a Hungarian refugee. And um, so these pictures by Chagall, Ecol de Paris mostly, but several really good Lowrys. I had a beautiful Lowry in my bedroom. Those are my first memories. That is uh, quite a first art memory. What was the art scene like for you growing up? There wasn't really an art scene as such when I was growing up. Um, when I was 20 years old, the art scene was uh, dominated by Cork Street, dealers like James Mayer, Leslie Waddington, Godfrey Pilkington, the Redfern Gallery, and the wonderful Lillian Browse at uh, Roland Browse del Banco, as it was called, before it was Browse and Derby. So the focus was largely Cork Street rather than St James's and Hanover Square with Doffe. Doffe used to be a book dealer in Vigo Street, but moved to Daring Street, more or less this time. Sotheby's and Christie's, of course, were going along with Bonham's, and Sotheby's had a branch at, at Belgravia, which sold wonderful things. Sotheby's Belgravia with Peter Nahum as chief auctioneer expert, selling Victorian art. But as for an art scene, there wasn't one in terms of private views and parties that subsequently came with art being very fashionable. It wasn't like that. It was about dedicated collectors. At its heyday, when Mayer Gallery were really, really having the most groundbreaking shows for England, some of it from James Mayer's friendship with uh, Leo Castelli, the dominant collector of the time was really Peter Palumbo when it came to 60s art. And Peter Palumbo was a, was, a, was a huge force for good in the art world at that time. And obviously, overlapping with Peter, there was, it was when Charles Saatchi was collecting. And um, Boundary Road was a groundbreaking event for London. And uh, really, we still, we still need that. The current Saatchi Gallery off Sloan Square doesn't fulfil that role at all. It was the, a time when David Sylvester, Saatchi and uh, Nick Sirota formed a sort of powerful triumvirate along with Norman Rosenthal at the Royal Academy, who also 
I have admitted to mention in, uh, uh, at the time of this beginning of my career, Norman's New Spirit in Painting show at the Royal Academy was a complete breakthrough, uh, introducing the British public to um, those great German artists um, and to what was happening in Europe with Arte Pobre. This is a very exciting, exciting era. I also wanted to mention Kasmin, because um, Kasmin, who was financed really largely by Sheridan Dufferin, the Marquis of Dufferin and Ava, and his wife, Lindy Guinness, as she was, Lindy Dufferin and, and Sheridan were a wonderful force in the art world, and Kasmin was the first person to show properly David Hockney. And Kaz is still very much alive, I'm happy to say, retired from the art world and more interested in travel and exploration than he is in, um, in a contemporary art dealing career. And a lot of those galleries actually are still around. Um, Mayer is on Cork Street and Browse and Derby. And actually, I met, when I did my first pop-up 10 years ago, it was the flat above my gallery was Peter Nahum, who then went and set up Leicester Galleries. Is that right? Well, he bought the Leicester Gallery name, which is quite cheeky, really, typically Peter, because Peter Nahum as a name is, in a way, as good as anything, really. Um, Leicester Galleries were, were just a heroic gallery. They, they, um, they dominated the English art market through the... 20s, 30s, I think it was, really, with great shows of Nevinson and um, Wadsworth, all, all sorts of very interesting shows they put on. You have a very distinct uh, look and style uh, that's very recognisable. It's who you are. Um, as a teen, did you rebel against your father? And do you think this is what happened? This is what shaped your look and sensitivities for later life? Not really. I think, I, I think rock music influenced me like it influenced a lot of my generation. I mean, we played when I went away to boarding school, you know, all the studies were reverberating with percussive noise of rock music from sort of Alice Cooper, Deep Purple, early David Bowie, Roxy Music, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. And I was very influenced by that. I always liked to have my hair long. I hated having my hair cut. My mother used to allow it. And as soon as I could, I went to Carnaby Street with a friend, my earliest school friend, Graham, and we used to stay at Kalman's house, at Andre Kalman's house, my mentor, really, and used to buy, in those days, it was long velvet frock coats and stack-heeled boots, and whatever I could get away with at school, I wore, including eye makeup and... But I was always very conservative. Beneath the veneer, I was actually, you know, head of house and quite a responsible person, <laughs> never took drugs. Um, and quite sporty as well. Uh, no, still... not at school. I, was, I, I played tennis, but my father was so good at tennis and so competitive that I took up squash instead. And I became reasonable at squash player, but never at a county level. I was a useful club player, that's all, in right. squash. I uh, ran every day, that's all. Now, in the introduction, I alluded to this uh, incredible deal that you did uh, one morning uh, with a collector, Swedish collector, Bo Alvary. Can you recount that meeting? Yeah, this was another chance meeting, really. Um, I'd advised Thomas Gibson that we must buy this bacon painting for a couple of million dollars from Claude Bernard. It was a bacon self-portrait. And Hugues Joff, who was running the contemporary art department, I forget whether it was Christie's or Sotheby's, he, he'd met Boo Alfred and brought him round to see Thomas Gibson. And Thomas, rather than getting the painting to his gallery, he suggested that uh, Boo Alfred and Hugues come to my house. And Boo Alfred said, will Mr Bracker see me at six o'clock in the morning? And Thomas said, 
Well, I don't think he would, but he might see you at 7.30. And so I agreed to meet at 7.30 in the basement of my house because my house was being um, refurbished at 63 Cadogan Square. So they arrived, this giant Swede, he was about six foot seven tall, with his wife and Thomas Gibson and Oog. And he said, where's the picture? So I took him into a tiny sitting room and turned the painting round from the back to the wall. And he said, what do you think? I said, well, it's not bad. He said, not bad, it is a masterpiece. How much is it? And I said, it's $4.2 million, Mr. Alfred. Thomas at this point was dancing a jig in the background because he was just thought that this was so far-fetched that the man, he thought the man wasn't serious. And Alfred said, uh, and the price to me? I said, $4.2 million, Mr. Alfred. He said, I'm going to buy it. And that's when Thomas started dancing, I think, in mockery. He said, you will be paid on Tuesday. They left and Tuesday came and there was 4.2 million. I rang Thomas. I said, Thomas, can you give me your bank details because I've received 4.2 million dollars? And Thomas said, don't be ridiculous, Ivor. It's not true. I said, give me the bank details. Uh, stop this. And I paid him. And that was that. The first client I had really on any scale was... Uh, in Posgate, known as Goldfinger, Lloyd's underwriter, who I'd actually met through his mistress, uh, who came into Calman's when Calman wasn't there, and I very naughtily took her round to my own apartment, and she bought things for Ian and took him round. And then I also met Robert Hiscox through a girlfriend, um, both Lloyd's people, interestingly. So Hiscox, I made the original Hiscox collection, which had Bacon, Damien Hurst, wow. Russian constructivists... Um, and uh, Thomas Dane initiated a sort of new phase of the collection where we did buy the Hearst and all sorts of interesting contemporary art. But Hiscox thought that he would annoy me. Uh, he'd been rather annoyed that Jennifer, who was a friend of mine, a, a girlfriend of mine, an ex-girlfriend, who he really fancied, he, he, he picked her up at Calman's Gallery and said, let's have dinner. And she brought me along, which rather upset him. And he said, I need either, I need a pink picture for a large wall, uh, thinking that would annoy me by its sort of philistine nature of the question. And I said, actually, yes, I'll, there's, uh, there's a beautiful large odalisk by Jacqueline Marval that we've got in the gallery. And, and he bought it. And that was the beginning of a really good relationship. I used to have long dinners with Robert and then take him back to my flat in Pont Street. And over another bottle of wine, I would sell him art. And as he said, you sold me pictures which I would never have bought in a gallery. It was the fact that we were relaxing late at night over a bottle of wine and other dealers, you know, shut shop at six. You, you were prepared to still trade at midnight with me. And Posgate then introduced me to the major collector at the time, pre-Boo Alvarez, a wonderful man in California who, again, used to like to have dinner and then open a bottle of Mouton Rothschild and... Um, spend a couple of hours with me while we talked about the art with his poor wife, who was a, an evangelical Christian, who tolerated us uh, chatting late into the night. She used to go to sleep on the sofa, and at the end of which he would have bought several hundred thousand pounds worth of art from me. Um, he had the biggest collection of British art, 20th century British art in America, the best collection, wow. which had the Huntingdon done what we both wanted and bought this collection when he decided to sell 
it would have been a better collection than the um, Yale Centre for British Art in terms of its 20th century collection, but they didn't bite. You seem pretty established at that period, but I want to go back to the 70s when you were dealing in minimalism. Uh, it was Judd. the early 80s. The early 80s, okay. So you were dealing in so, Donald Judd, uh, Robert Mangold, Carl Andre, and then you got into... I st- wasn't dealing in it. I had been introduced to minimalism on a contemporary art society tour when I was still at university, I was still at Oxford, and I saw Count Panzer's collection outside of Milan, I think it was, and I thought, these artists are great. And then Richard Francis, who was a curator at the Tate, a senior curator, led a Patrons of New Art tour around America and um, around the East Coast, and we visited Johnson's house and we went to Paula Cooper's gallery where I saw Carl Andre and I was with John Weber who was a great dealer in minimalism and I bought quite early on Carl Andre from Paula Cooper in the very early 80s and I bought Judd from Castelli Mangold at auction and I had these things at my house in Brompton Square and no one took any interest in London in these things at all um I loved them myself. It was about the time that Equivalent 8 was bought for the Tate, the Carl Andre, whichever one, the pile of bricks, the infamous pile of bricks. And I would dearly like to keep them, the minimalist things, as part of a collection. But like all my art dealing career, I've had to sell things to buy other things. And um, I had other people pushing me to slightly leave the modern British dealing and move into more international art. Principally, it was John L. Drax at the Marlborough Gallery who encouraged me to buy artists that they sold, Bacon and um, Auerbach, but it was moving into a bigger league, really, than modern British painting at the time, economically. I mean, it was bigger league. I don't mean bigger league aesthetically. So for economic reasons, really, I stopped dealing... Well, I stopped even trying to sell minimalists. I mean, I, I, I... the Carl Andre ended up in the museum in Fort Worth, but after I'd already sold it at cost via Sotheby's, I think. But I've always had an enduring love of Carl Andre. You've sold over 40 Francis Bacon works in your uh, career. Um, why have you been so successful in, in selling Francis Bacon when it's so hard to live with? Well, I had a very good connection with Gilbert Lloyd and with um, John L. Drax at the Marlborough. So they were very helpful to me in helping me borrow bacons and get involved in the market. And then I started buying them myself with finance from the bank, my father. And one thing led to another. I became very much a specialist in this field. And, you know, some of the exhibitions, I remember the Hirshhorn one had maybe eight loans from me or 10 loans through me. I mean, they weren't my pictures, but people just, I got a reputation for dealing and it. It just, um, it just accelerated from there. But you are known as the as a man. When someone said that, you know, if you want you need Francis Bacon, you come to Ivor. Is that still the case? No, it's not the case anymore. Um, the Bacon estate moved from Marlborough to um, Tony Schifrazi, and they were selling really the remnants of the stuff which Bacon probably wouldn't have allowed out of his studio. But nonetheless, Marlborough just became disconnected with the Bacon market, and I also found that the prices had escalated to a point where I could no longer buy these pictures. They were over... Once they got to being over $4 million, I was really out of the game. It's the reason why I haven't dealt in American 
abstract expressionists, for instance, you know, you have to spend $30 million for a good Rothko and 20 for a Liechtenstein. I was sort of content or, uh, between sort of half a million dollars up to three or four million. That was my price range. Do you deal with a lot of American artists? Because you seem to stick to English and European. No, I love American art. I mean, we're sitting in a room with a Anne Truitt painting and we've got a 1953 Ellsworth Kelly. Um, I've bought Ryman quite a lot, um, Agnes Martin, Carl Andre. I still have a Copper Corner by Andre. I've got a Robert Morris Felt piece. I have a Dan Flavin from 1969. Um, I've just sold a Warhol shadow painting, one of the large shadow paintings, and also a um, Dwayne Hansen delivery man. And I collect... and. In my pub, I've got lots of Glenn, works by Glenn Ligon, who is an artist I really love and admire, both as a person and um, you have a neon as, as well. an artist. I've got Negro Sunshine, yeah. which is hanging in the pub in the Gunton Arms. Yeah. Maybe so, I... no, I do. So you do. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever received? Collecting advice. Collecting advice. I don't think anyone's ever given me collecting advice, really. I've very much followed my own, my own, or more kind of art lonely furrow, really. I mean, business advice. I mean, I mean, the people that have influenced me have been mentors. I have followed them. So Michael Whiteway was a tremendous mentor in my love of um, William Morris, particularly in William Godwin furniture. And uh, Pugin introducing me to sort of 19th century, what are known as decorative arts. They're anything but decorative. They're very structural and influential. And then Kalman clearly, in his love of anything English and vernacular furniture for the pubs and things, because he had a naive folk art museum. And Kalman's taste in quite difficult things in a way, the dark, lonely, lowry paintings. And Kalman loved bacon as well. Anthony Doffe influenced me a lot in his sort of collecting vorticism and um, his level of curatorship of his shows was better than any other dealer in London, really. I learnt from these people and picked up a lot from having good mentors. I just want to mention Doffe because in my previous life, when I had the gallery in Mayfair, Anthony would come in quite often on his way to Daring Street and even just looking at a book, especially a Warhol illustration book, he would just give me such an insight into the work and the life. And I always left, uh, he always left and I felt that I, had, I'd, I got a degree after he came in. I'm very fond of him. Now about collecting though in general, I've tried and failed almost always to get people to do a to buy things that they don't necessarily like but they recognise as being good because I think that we often underestimate the artist and if the artist's a great artist and I think it's good to be slightly humble about it like I can think of the classic case for me was my next door neighbour James Kirkman who's a great friend Kirkman had hanging in his house a painting by Frank Auerbach called Smithfield Meat Market. I was physically repelled by this picture. It was a 1962-63 picture with thick, encrusted brown paint on it. It's one of the great sort of Rembrandt-esque early Auerbachs. There was something about it that kept me looking at it, even though I was, as I say, I found it faintly repellent. 
And I ended up buying it six years later when Doffe and Kirkman split up. They, they owned it together and they put it into auction. I ended up buying it for £6,500. And it was in my collection for over 10 years. And I, I grew to adore the painting. It was rather like, it's like people that you meet first time and you think, oh, they're really, really nice people. I really like them. They're so charming. You meet them the second time, you realise, actually, I'm going to be bored to death by this person. And you meet another person that you may have a bit of a fight with or not like them that much, but you give them a chance and they become far more connected to you and better friends. And I think you should treat an artwork slightly like that when you buy it. And you should recognise somehow the quality in it without necessarily being, you know, it's something that you find easy. I think you should fight with it a bit and you end up finding that those are the things that you end up treasuring in your collection more than the things that may have been easier. I love that. Why do you think major collectors come to you? I don't think they do come to me. I come to them uh, usually and I've come to them through chance. So there are a lot of collectors that I haven't come to and because I haven't met them in the right way or there haven't been opportunities to meet them in the right way or they're not owned, but they've got other minders, like they might be Larry Gagosian's clients, and I don't like treading on other people's pitch, or they might be David Zwerner clients. And these gallerists, in general, certainly David Zwerner and Gagosian, you know, they're very trusting to invite someone like me to their dinners, where they often have their very best clients, because they know that I'm not going to sort of take down their, the phone numbers of clients who I've been chatting to and say, oh, I'm going to come and see you in Malibu and try and sell you something. I mean, I just wouldn't do that. So I have to meet people like I told you. I met Boo Alfred through Thomas Gibson, and then he subsequently came to me. The Astrups, who became great clients, and they were great collectors in the 80s and 90s and even into 2000s. They, um, Hans Rasmus Astrup and his brother Halvor have had a private museum in Oslo, and they were great, great, became great friends and collected from me, and I subsequently bought all their Lucian Freud paintings when they were very stupidly advised by their director to deaccession all the Freuds because the curator was interested in arte povera and other aspects of art and thought that Lucian Freud was an atavistic throwback to an earlier time and had no relevance to um, the 21st century and therefore had to go. But anyway, Hans Rasmus I met because of John L. Drax and Gilbert Lloyd and Hans Rasmus said to me one day, he said, Ivor, my museum is stuck really with Bacon, Kitai and Kiefer and Richter, I want to take this forward. So I'm going to ask you and John to Wilton's next week and you're going to come up with an idea, an artist or a work by an artist that's going to extend into more, a more contemporary vision. This was in the 90s. So I thought about it and we arrived at Wilton's and Hans Rasmus had his usual lobster intercourse he had a first course and then lobster and then and then a main course and he said well what's it to be and I said well actually I'm going to show you this and it was a picture of Damien Hurst's cow cut in half um, mother and child divided which had been at the Venice Biennale which Jay had been unable to sell because the formaldehyde had been leaking out of the tank and lots of people were put off by the sort of conservation aspects. I said, you should buy this for the Astrup Fernley Museum because it'll really 
it, it, it fits with the ethos of the rather dark side that you've got with Bacon, Kiefer, Kitai. It will still keep the feeling that you've got with the earlier connection, but it will drive the collection forward. So I took Hans Rasmus to meet Damien, because he wanted to meet the artist, to Green Street, which you were asking me what was the scene. Green Street was very much part of the scene. It was... It was like a much more edgy version of Hartford Street, of Five Hartford Street, and it was run by Orlando Campbell. Lucian Freud used to go to Green Street to meet all these beautiful aristocratic women that he picked up and subsequently used as models, and he loved talking to young people. And it was So Lucian was propping up the bar. There were all sorts of people there. It was a really exciting place to be. Great food and delicious, very good cocktails. And I introduced the two of them, and... Uh, Hans Rasmus ended up buying Mother and Child Divided. I did what I never do. I allowed Jay Jopling to invoice direct. Normally I would get Jay to invoice me and I, would, I like being a principal in a deal so I can control the deal. And I should have used my old method rather than that because when it came to commission, Jay said, well, what do you want? And I said, I think I'm worth £25,000 in this deal. It was £175,000, the sculpture by Hearst. And Jay said, oh, I, was, I was thinking more in terms of 5000 I said, well, Jay, there's no point. I can see you really prefer to give me nothing, you know. I'm not taking £5,000. So subsequently, I saw Jay at an art fair, and there was a picture by Damien with an unsaleable title. It was called, it was a spin painting, and it was called You Can Suck My Fucking Cock and Drink the Spunk. And so I said, Jay... I'd like that as my commission. It was priced at £12,500. He said, yep, that's, that's fine. I sold it to Robert Hiscox the next day for £25,000. <laughs> so I got my commission. So I was able to forgive Jay. Um, and in fact, Jay is one of my dearest uh, colleagues. And he does, to his credit, he does say, I was a bit mean, Ivor, and I should have, um, I should have just paid up. But anyway... It was a happy ending. <laughs> um, do you take interest in emerging artists? I take interest in them, but I don't trust my eye when I look to the very new. I'm afraid I, I, I told you I have depended on mentors through my life and my natural taste and vision is for certain artists. Obviously, you know, like I particularly like Herbin Anderson and I like, you know, all sorts of contemporary art. But I've, I'm afraid I've used... Another mentor, he's, he might be embarrassed to hear it, but Thomas Dane seems to me to have the best antennae in this business when it comes to looking at contemporary art. And I don't usually commit to buying too much. I sometimes stray away from what Thomas has advised and usually wrongly. I think he's got an incredible strike record when it comes... Not, I'm not thinking commercially. I'm thinking as to what's relevant culturally in art and what's going to endure as something that's going to be of interest, not just aesthetically, but in society, in relation to contemporary thought and thinking. And um, so although I work with, for instance, I was you know, an assessor for the Royal Drawing School it was you know, in the time uh, Prince Charles's project, which is an incredible thing... Um, mostly dependent on life drawing, which is something that hasn't been a compulsory subject in art schools, but the Royal Drawing School has focused on life drawing and I was an assessor for that, so I had to sort of tr at least try and attempt, because I used to select who gets the bursaries. I was on the assessment board. 
so I do look at emerging art and I do go to graduate shows, but I'm not a Charles Saatchi who can pick the needle out of the haystack and find, um, you know, these hidden treasures. What is the most rewarding deal you've done? I think it was after looking for many years at Anthony Doffe's Vortices collection, which I never thought that he would sell. But when the financial need came upon him to open number 23 Daring Street, he finally agreed to sell me Red Duet by Wyndham Lewis. That's probably the most... Which is one of your favourite artworks that you'd save if there was a fire. It it is, yeah. Yes. It is. Um, I mean, my biggest... um, Failure as a collector has been not to buy a piece of furniture, which I regard as, to me, the most radical piece of furniture perhaps that's ever been created. I know these superlatives are probably meaningless, but Godwin, there's there's a famous Godwin sideboard in the V&A, which is sort of Anglo-Japanese, designed in 1875, which sort of predates the sort of rectilinear qualities of Mondrian or the Bauhaus movement. It's an incredible piece of furniture, and I've always wanted it. And there have only been about three or four examples that have come up in my lifetime. And um, Bill Taubman Jr. and his wife, Ellen, offered... They were very honourable. They offered me theirs. They'd managed to get one. And um, I just didn't have the the money. It was about close to $2 million, I think. And um, they ended up selling it to the Art Institute of Chicago, bought it. The last time I saw you just for Christmas, uh, as you walked me to the door, you said, every art sale is a miracle. And I've thought about that uh, constantly. Um, and I've spoken to a few people about it, considering, you know, for someone who's, who's been so successful in selling paintings. Can you expand on that? I can. I think since the art business has become much more commercialised, probably since the mid-90s, and it's accelerated that uh, tendency. People that buy art now are no longer necessarily collectors. People who bought art prior to 1995, in general, they they either were connoisseurs or they wanted to decorate, or they they were famous movie stars or rich businessmen who wanted to decorate their house, or they were the very knowledgeable rich Greek collectors in Birikos and uh, Niarchos who used... Aquavella and Thomas Gibson to, and David Beaufort to make their collections. They weren't thinking of the money. They wanted really great art objects. Since 95, art's become more of a brand with people wanting to buy from the very large galleries, Zwerner, Aquavella, Gagosian, to name just a few. And people are, feel more comfortable buying from buying a brand as if they're buying from Ralph Lauren or Prada. So someone with a corner shop like me, who people used to like going to because they thought I was more of a connoisseur in a way and I'd pick out the very best examples of certain works, now they'd rather go to White Cube where they can see 10 Tracy Emmons in an exhibition or something like that rather than have it pre-selected by me for them. And with the dominant of auction house mentality in, a, in that collectors like to think there's a, a lot of them they're, they're more investors than collectors they like to think there's an underbidder they resent profit even though actually the auction house's hidden fees amount to over 25% in many cases and there are all sorts of hidden charges there people resent you making a profit and they think well if Ivor Brack has bought this um, you know 
Damien Hirst or Stanley Spencer for this price. Why am I buying it from him? Why don't I buy it at auction, even though they'll compete against another collector and drive it up many times the amount of money I'm making? So they want to think when you sell them something that either they're, in a way, getting an absolute steal and that either it's a forced sale or that um, they want to think they know something you don't or otherwise you must be profiteering and you're making too big a margin, perhaps. So they try and make obstacles against buying something whereas in the old days if they felt passionately about it they just buy it and they buy it from you so now i think every sale is a miracle yeah they, they, they'll try and find every possible reason not to buy something or they'll say i'd buy this picture but if it didn't have the red in the top left corner you feel like saying why don't you paint the fucking picture yourself you know there's always some something but actually it's funny you should say that because one of my questions i wrote this morning after my run was what obstacles do you think there are when collectors buy works but i think you've completely answered that so thank you you've donated to many art institutions including the serpentine and the yale center of fine art we mentioned earlier the tate and i was very interested to read that you're also a major patron of the gallery climate coalition other than traveling extensively um, how else do we reduce our impact on the environment? Quite apart from that venture, I've, since 1986, I've planted over a million trees. I've uh, greened a whole wow. area of Norfolk. Sorry, this is going to sound boastful, but it's true. That's I, terrific. It's my major passion is ecology and, uh, and wildlife. And um, any money I've made art dealing really has gone into this landscape project in Norfolk where I've recreated this historic park at Gunton. Gunton, yeah. Yeah. Which I'll mention later on. So, yeah. What do you look for in a work of art? What I look for in a work of art? I look for something that is going to give me lasting challenge, really, and something that's going to, um, that I'm, that's going to maintain my interest. I look for something that's going to give me an added dimension to my life, if possible. What Ezra Pound used to say, to bust through the quotidian, to get out of the everyday into a sort of more intense mental space. You quoted Henri Matisse the other day, saying that every picture should just be a nice thing to look at. What was the quote he, exactly? No, uh, uh, Matisse said that uh, a painting should give you the sensation of sinking into a soft, comfortable sofa, which I completely disagree with him. I want pic pictures to be the exact opposite of that. I don't want to be made comfortable by what's around me. Last year was the 25th anniversary of Sensation, which, of course, launched the, the YBAs. Since then, or even before then, what? give me a couple of exhibitions that's that really inspired you. Straight off, because it's so vivid to me, seeing the Edvard Munch exhibition at the Hayward Gallery, which must have been in the mid-70s or late-70s. Edvard Munch has always been an artist that's absolutely continued to excite and intrigue me for his interests in the salient things in life, which is about sickness and death, about the mystery of sexual desire and the terrifying loneliness and melancholy that happens from withdrawal from that level of closeness with another human being, and the sort of the way he depicts the, both the tenderness of life and the frightening nature of our loneliness in the universe, really. That the, I mean, famously, obviously, is the, the scream 
where he hears this great cry going through nature. And there's also, I read the other day, there's a, um, a very large monk painting that's been uncovered. I think it was stolen by the Nazis and it's been uh, brought back to yes. life. It was found in an attic? Or... Yes, it, it was part of a decorative scheme. I'm sure it's a very wonderful picture, but I find that the monks that have been painted as part of a mural are, are less intense than some of the smaller works. I mean, I don't want to comment on the... Co- I've not seen this picture, so I'm not qualified to comment, but... Now, this is kind of the, could be a $10 million question, could be a $5 million question. Art as an investment, is it down to luck, trend, scarcity? You know, you, your strategy has always been, I, I understand, has been to buy and hold, and you've done extremely well because of that. Well, I've just bought things that, to me, seem absolutely created by, by genius, really. Um, by the, try and buy something that's by people who have a profound understanding of, life really as artists and can communicate this and to buy the very very best but that's very bad advice if you want to make a quick buck I mean obviously you want to follow a trend if you you know like obviously the recent trends I don't need to tell you what they are they're very very um, much led by gender politics and identity politics and you know there's been a lot of money made rather cynically by people who've who've invested in this but um Obviously, within those fields, there are some very, very great and interesting artists, but you have to be good enough to know who they are as a dis- or discerning enough to know who's got staying power and who hasn't. And I've taken, I suppose, just a very direct view of buying what I find, or I think, is really great work. That's all, just to, to buy things that I think are great. I have lots of young gallerists and dealers listening to this. Um, what's your best piece of advice you would give them? If they're young dealers, I think they should, if they have the opportunity to go to museum shows and some of the smaller exhibitions around the country and befriend, if possible, the curators, many of whom are extremely good at what they do. And I would get close to curators and see the artists that they are championing or who they would like in their collections. I mean, Tate, for instance, used to never buy anything less than 50 years old. Well, that policy's shifted, thank goodness. And whilst there may be a lot of things that in the future will be consigned to basement storage or have to be in a new era of possibly deaccessioning, which may come in, I think it's still a good thing. And the curators are really in touch with what's going on around the world. Um, and I, as a young person in the art world, I'd get close, try and get close to some curators and museums, join as many groups as you can of you know, whether it's Camden Arts Centre or whatever, join support groups for exhibition centres. And then I would get close to some of the teachers at art schools and go around the art schools. It's not something I've done. I befriended senior curators in America, particularly, not with a view, by the way, to making money, but because it's been the greatest joy in my life has been meeting these people who are so committed to art. And then they've introduced me to the collectors in their circle in a way that wouldn't have happened in Europe. I couldn't go to French museum, you know, I couldn't ring up a French museum curator or director and say, oh, hello, I'm 20 years old, it's Ivor Bracker, I'm a young art dealer, can I see you? But in America, I rang people up and 
said, can you spare 20 minutes of your time? And they were very open. They said, yes. If they liked me, they'd say, oh, how long are you staying in town? If you're here on Friday, I've got, there's a dinner that you can go to with uh, Howard and Cindy Rachowski. Why don't you come with me? And, and that one thing leads to another. And before you know it, you've got one curator, and then you're starting to lend them pictures by, whoever, in my case, it was Bacon to Jim Dimitrian, become friends with Jim, James Dimitrian, who's one of the loveliest men he was the director of the Hirschhorn Museum for decades and previously Des Moines. And then I said, Jim, I'm going to Des Moines. And he said, Ivor, well, I'm going to ring up Susan Talbot. You'll like her. She's the director. I go to Des Moines and she says, what are you doing tonight? I said, nothing. She said, well, my husband's out of town. Do you eat pork? I said, well, I am Jewish, but yeah, I do. She said, well, I'm Jewish too, but let's go to the hog roast joint, Jesse's Embers. It's a really great restaurant. And she took me to dinner, and then she became director of the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And so it's a whole network that you can form, and which I formed, through just enjoying the company of these remarkable people. And in some cases, staying with them, Steve Nash, who was the chief curator at the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. You know, I'd stay with Steve and Carol, his wife, for three weeks at a time and sleep in their basement and borrow a car and just have fun. Terrific advice, and I've taken lots of notes there. What do you lament and what do you love about the art world? Well, I'll start with what I love, which is I love the people in it. Not all of them, of course, but particularly my relationships with my colleagues. And I do enjoy my relationship with certain of the artists. I treasure them. And, of course, museum curators and museum directors. I've had my life enriched and enhanced so much by that. And even some of the collectors, I would say, have um, really made my life a better place to be. What I lament about the art world is its um, excessive commercialisation and the um, corporatization of the art world and... To a degree, the loss of liberty and freedoms in certain aspects, which, um, you know, that I also lament. I think we're, we're very much trained to think along certain lines these days, whereas um, there was a lot more room for diversity of opinion during the 80s and 90s. I think we're in a new Puritan era, which for me is disastrous. <laughs> You have a whole different life in Norfolk, and I know you're very passionate about ecology. Tell me about the Gunton Arms and what you have built there. Well, the Gunton Arms, again, luck. I was married to someone who I'm very much a friend of now, Sarah Graham. And Sarah said, come on, Ivo, this is the third time this very faulty towers outfit has been sold. We can buy it together and make, um, make it really interesting. She disadvised me from putting contemporary art. She said it's pretentious to have contemporary art in a traditional pub. It should be really... I didn't take her advice on that. I bought the pub and made it into almost a time warp of a sort of 18th century coaching inn and a haven for locals who otherwise had nowhere exciting to go, really. But I put contemporary art very deliberately there, which a lot of the people would never have seen, by international artists such as Glenn Ligon, Larry Clark, Alexis Rockwell, Paul Arrego, Joanna Vasconcelos, I could go on, you know. And I like the fact of displaying art to people that wouldn't normally look at this kind of thing or going to a museum. I think the art's incidental, it's not sort of forced at them, and if they are interested, 
you know, I've written a guide to the place so which they can read about the art, or they can ignore it completely. Or in many cases, you know, I'm afraid quite a lot of people, we get terrible TripAdvisor reviews with people being shocked by the content. The police tried to close me down for incitement to racial hatred and pornography, which happily Glenn Ligon wrote a beautiful letter, Nick Sorota, and even the local lady vicar wrote in my support saying that this was absolutely wrong of the police. And uh, the police nonetheless took it to the uh, Crown Prosecution Service, um, who actually dismissed the case and said that um, it was fine. So I'm allowed to keep everything there that is there. I look forward to visiting. Um, and I have my final question, which I ask every guest. Which artist, living or dead, would you commission to do your portrait? Yes, I thought you were going to ask which artist actually, uh, living or dead, I would have in my collection. I would probably, if I, in an ideal world, there are lots of things. Of course, it changes day to day, rather like your favourite song or symphony. But uh, probably Dürer's self-portrait in the Prado would be a contender. And The Seven Acts of Mercy in the Church in Naples by Caravaggio would be um, something I'd love to live with. The other question you asked about what advice did you say or what? Uh, no, which artist, living or dead, would you commission to do your portrait? Wow. Dead, it would probably be Titian. <laughs> and living, I think I'd like a photograph by Catherine Opie. Um, can you get that sorted? I think I will. Maybe after this. Maybe after this. Iba, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking time and it's been entertaining, interesting in equal measures. And as my brother-in-law said uh, the other day when, I, when you agreed, it's quite a coup and I totally agree. Thank you so much. No, thank you.